How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's just a wonderful privilege we have to come together as believers just to study your word, to be refreshed by the study of your word, to reflect upon what you have given us and provided for us and all that you have supplied us in part of our uh, Christian life and the new life that we have in Christ. And Father, it's so important for us to learn uh, these vital doctrines that are revealed in these chapters in Romans and how they impact the way we think about who we are and we think about uh, what you've given us and how we need to learn to access and to utilize and to and to think and live in terms of these new realities. Now, Father, as we continue our study this evening, help us to understand what you've taught in your word and reveal to us that we may apply it to our, our own thinking in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 8, and we've been <clears throat> going down through the... Um, through Romans 8, looking at this contrast between those who are living according to the Spirit and those who are living according to the flesh. The flesh is just another term that the Apostle Paul uses for uh, describing the sin nature. And the sin nature is just as, uh, just as powerful and is just as evil and just as wicked and just as deceptive in the believer as in the unbeliever. And that's one of those factors that some Christians just have a very, very tough time dealing with. And so they usually within the history of Christianity, there have been two ways of dealing with it. Number one, if you're still committing some sins that uh, that culture or that time period has deemed the most wicked, evil, uh, terrible sins, then then you've lost your salvation. You've just committed some act that's too great for the grace of God that God somehow forgot to uh, uh, take care of at the cross or something like that. And that usually goes by one of two names historically, either Pelagianism. That was me. I was adjusting my uh, thing there. Um, Pelagian, Pelagius is... Uh, Pelagius was a English monk who was Augustine or Augustine, depending on whether you're Protestant Catholic or went to a Protestant or Catholic school. Uh, Augustine was uh, his opponent. And if you read Augustine, you think he's just about as messed up as, as Pelagius was. But Pelagius believed everybody was born with just as pure a soul as Adam was created with. And uh, they chose to sin, and they chose to be to be saved. It was a purely work salvation, and then you could uh, choose to commit sins that would cause you to lose your salvation. Augustine's answer was really a almost fatalistic view of of a salvation that later took another form as as Calvinism. There are a lot of similarities. The Calvinist Arminian debate that occurred at the end of the 1600s 
early seven, or, or, excuse me, end of the 16th century, early 17th century, was very similar, rehashed a lot of the same ideas, and we continue to fight those same battles today. And uh, the Calvinist or the Augustinian camp really goes to the opposite extreme. It's not that you lose your salvation. They just say you just weren't truly saved to begin with. And both sides fail to understand the principle of the total depravity of man, even though that's a major watchword for Calvinists and Augustinians. They, they, think, that, uh, they, they think that regeneration for the Calvinist, for the, uh, for the Augustinian, they think that regeneration, it's not that regeneration gives birth to a new entity in your soul, in your immaterial part of your being, as we believe, but that what regeneration does is it sort of uh, uh, takes away some of the power, some of the ability of the sin nature. That's how they define regeneration. It's not that you... Um, you gain new capabilities and a new life and a new relationship with God, but you lose the capacity to be as bad as you were before you were saved. That's really how they define define regeneration. I remember about 12 or 13 years ago reading an excellent scholarly article, not that I agreed with it, but it was well-researched and well-argued by a former classmate of mine, uh, in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, who was dealing with that whole kerfuffle between um, Louis Berry Chafer, who at that time still had not yet started Dallas Seminary. He was a budding theologian when he wrote He That Is Spiritual, and it was reviewed by a man who was considered the greatest living theologian, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, who was the head of the theology department at, at Princeton. And Warfield just took uh, young Chafer to task for that book uh, because it it just was contrary to what was taught within the Reformed or the Presbyterian uh, theological camp. And Chafer was an ordained uh, Presbyterian, so uh, Warfield just uh, uh, just really went after it. But in this article by this classmate of mine going through it, it, what really struck me was in his conclusion, he said that a lot of what Schaefer had said was really good. That there's always a but that comes after that. But he just had a low view of regeneration. He didn't understand how regeneration limited the sin nature. And that was one of those sentences you read that it's light goes off and you suddenly realize why a lot of people think the way they think is because they've misdefined certain terms or they've got some bad theology in there. So that's, uh, all of that is, is crucial for really understanding what, what's going on here, why different Christians believe different things about the Christian life. And it comes down to, usually theological deductions that are imposed on the text rather than looking at what the Scripture says and studying it. And some of this takes a lot of time. It's not as simple to study. You can't just look at what it says necessarily on the surface because a surface reading of chapter 8 out of context may look as if Paul is contrasting the regenerate with the unregenerate when he uses phrases about walking according to the flesh or those who are in the flesh versus those who are in the spirit, it sounds at, at a certain superficial level 
but you have to study out those phrases as they are used by the Apostle Paul, especially in his formative epistle, Galatians, which is what we looked at last time, showing that conflict between the spirit, uh, the spirit and the flesh. Now, I developed this chart years ago to show that there are two types of believers that are laid out uh, in Romans uh, chapter 8. There are always two different kinds of people being talked about. There are those who are successful and then those who are failures. There's two lifestyles that are described uh, in chapter, I mean in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. See, that whole phrase needs to be taken together. It, the the right requirement of the law is fulfilled in those who are walking uh, according to the Spirit. So you have the successful believer is the one who lives and walks according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh or the sin nature. Then there's a contrast of two different ways of thinking in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh and living and walking are parallel concepts. You see that um, uh, parallel uh, symmetry there or the uh, synonym synonymous parallelism between 4 and 5. Uh, 4 uses the word flesh, and uh, then um, you have those who are living according to the flesh, which is the sin nature, versus those who are living according to the spirit. So that sets up that, that contrast there uh, between living, verse 5, walking, and verse 4. Walking is just a metaphor for how people conduct their lives. So uh, the successful believer operates on God's way of thinking, which is derived from the Word. The Word gives us the framework, the principles, the promises, and we, as we meditate on it, it changes our frame of reference for thinking. It doesn't just happen. It, God wants us engaged in constantly reading and studying because that's the only way we, can, we really process uh, what is there. It's not like... Uh, God giving us a systematic theology book where everything would be outlined, organized, and laid out in ten points, where once you read it and memorize it, you're good to go and you can go home and not read it anymore. But we have to constantly go back to the Bible. And each time we go back and reread and restudy, as we've studied in other parts of the Bible, and bring that information with us back to a fresh reading of Romans 6 through 8, then all of a sudden we begin to see things in these chapters that we hadn't seen before. So that is how it develops our thinking. So we have two, two ways of thinking, either according to doctrine or the divine viewpoint expressed in Scripture or human viewpoint paganism. Then there are two results that are laid out in verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, that is, when you're living, walking according to the flesh, according to the sin nature, the result is death, not eternal death but a death-like existence in the life of the believer who continues to live as if he is spiritually dead, so he, it produces a death-like life. Now, we're going to see a lot of this in our approaching study of Proverbs on Sunday morning because you see a lot of this kind of contrast in Proverbs between the wise and the fool, and the path of the wise leads to life, and the path of the fool leads to death. And again, in that, in that context, it's not talking about eternal death. It's the consequences of living according to uh, wrong, wrong understanding of reality. So we, it either leads to 
The success of walking according to the Spirit leads to life and peace, and the failure leads to a life of emptiness and death. Now, for a while, it may not seem empty. I think a lot of us may have had uh, situations or evangelism opportunities where we talk to somebody who's not a believer and we say, you know, you just can't really be happy without Jesus, without doctrine. And they're as happy as they can be because they, for, for example, this is a rather trite analogy, but if they think that uh, that they can be happy with uh, a lot of good food and a lot of good wine, and if they have a lot of good food and a lot of good wine, they're just as happy as they can be until something happens in life that shows that a lot of food and a lot of good food and a lot of good wine just really can't get them through the difficult times of life. And that's when the, the props get knocked out from under them. But for many years, as, as we've studied in Romans, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, live on the basis of a fantasy, and they think they're happy. It's a pseudo-happiness. It's a... It, it's a temporal happiness, but it has no uh, real depth to it. Uh, Paul talks about two attitudes towards God in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. This is the, when the, un, when the believer is living according to the sin nature, he's in rebellion against God. He's hostile to God. But because he's not, the carnal mind is not able to subject itself to the law of God, because it's in hostility to the to the Holy Spirit. So the contrast in those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the role of the believers to learn the word when he's walking by the Spirit, his life pleases God. There's a contrast we'll see in the upcoming verses, uh, two different kinds of sons in verses uh, 14 and 16. There are those who are sons indeed. And verse 14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The Spirit, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, So we are sons indeed, verse 14, but those who never grow are stay children. They stay immature. And then we'll see two kinds of heirs, those who are both heirs of God and heirs of Christ and the failures are only heirs of God. They are not heirs of Christ. So that chart contrasts this. So we're talking about what Paul is really saying here. Which kind of believer are you going to be? Do you want to be a believer that is successful in this life? And that's defined by God's standards for success. Or are you going to be a failure? You may be a success in the world's eyes, but a failure in God's eyes. And that's the only success and failure that really matters. So the issue is learning how to live, to walk according to the Holy Spirit. Now, as we come to verse 9, last time I passed through verses 9, 10, 11 a little quickly, I want to come back and just camp out on a couple of key key doctrines in verses 9 10 and 11. One of the things that I've pointed out again and again is that Romans 6 grounds the Christian life on this event called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And we've gone over that so many times. It's not in the Old Testament. No no believer, no saved person in all of the centuries prior to the day of Pentecost in AD 33 ever experienced a the baptism by the Holy Spirit, his identification with 
Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection because it hadn't happened historically. It had never occurred. Once that occurred, other things came along with that, minute, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. That baptism, that identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection dealt with sin in a, in a way that had never been dealt with before so that the individual believer could be, uh, could be sanctified positionally in a way that had never occurred before in history completely set apart to God, and this is related to another ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, his indwelling ministry, because that is related to his work of uh, in positional sanctification of making us a temple. And, and I, that's a concept that, that I don't think that we have explored enough in the history of Christianity, what it means that each of us as a believer is a temple, and the Greek word there is a na, is naos, N-A-O-S, which is the same word used to describe the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, and the tabernacle of the temple in the Old Testament, which is the specific area where God dwelt. And no one could come in there uh, except for the, the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and only other priests could go in occasionally to the other to the outer part, which was the whole, uh, the holy place. So we get into this, and it's important to follow the grammar here. And uh, we live in a world today when people don't want to pay a lot of attention to grammar, and it's very important because there's some confusion over this. Now, most of you have been fairly well taught, but it might surprise you that even among uh, some of the people, the pastors, that we know and love, don't always get this right because there's confusion here. And I have spent some time having some discussions uh, with them on this. I don't know how successful I have been, but it's, it's a little bit dicey at times, and they get, we all get influenced by other people we read and study, but this is really important. The verse reads, However you are not in the flesh... But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so what we have here in verse 9 is a conclusion and a built on a, a conditional sentence. And the conditional sentence is the phrase, if indeed the Spirit of God uh, dwells in you. And in Greek, there are different ways in which you can express what's called a hypothetical or a condition. If you go to the store, if you go to the store tonight, you're going to get wet. Well, that is a statement that if, and so the, the, the first part is assumed to be true, that if you go to the store, then you'll get wet because it's raining outside. Uh, you have statements similar to that in Scripture where the first part is assumed to be true. For example, when Satan is tempting the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, he said, if you are the Son of God, and he uses this first-class condition, and he is accepting the truth or stating that first um, condition as if it's true, if and you are the Son of God. Then you have another way of expressing a condition that if, and we're going to assume, it's not true. 
and um, uh, you might say something like, uh, if uh, uh, President Obama was a committed Christian, and it's not true, then he would not be hostile to many found foundational principles in the Constitution. See, you're making an initial statement, you're if, if it were true, but you're really saying it's not true. There are many kinds of those conditions stated in the Scripture. And then the third is the one that we normally think of when we state a, some sort of a condition, and that is if, and we really don't know whether something is true or not or is going to happen or not. This is like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, maybe you will, maybe you won't. We're not sure. It could go either way. So there are those three different ways to express a condition. In English, we only express it usually by the word if, and that doesn't necessarily convey the, the nuance or the meaning that's there in, in the Greek. And the meaning here in this if clause is if indeed means if and it's true. If and the Spirit of God does dwell in you. So Paul is assuming the indwelling of the Spirit of God in his audience. Now, as you look at this in the, in the English, asking a rhetorical question, you have you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Uh, is the you singular or plural? In English, it's difficult to tell because the, right, the translators did not come from south of the Mason-Dixon line, and so they don't distinguish between you, singular, and y'all, plural, or even all y'all, which is the plural of y'all. So we have to understand that because this is significant. You, is he talking about you as an individual or y'all as a group. Now, this is where I'm going with this, and and I want to clarify this tonight, is there are those who teach that when you get into the indwelling passages of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, specifically some in 6, 19, they say that what Paul is doing is talking about the corporate whole of the church is the place that the Spirit of God has made a temple. And I, I'm going to show you tonight that that's not true. I remember one time sitting down and having a good discussion with this about this with Jim Myers over in Kiev, one of the first years I went over there. And Jim said, we were actually talking about the 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 16 passage and why that really shouldn't be taken to be a corporate thing, although a lot of people take it that way. And he said, if you didn't have 1 Corinthians, how would you prove the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is this, this particular verse right here, 8 9, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this is a foundational, you can't really, uh, you can't debate this at all. This, we are indwelt. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of each of us as believers. Now, what's important, though, is we have to look at this plural pronoun. And I'm belaboring this because I think if we understand the plural pronoun here, we'll understand why the plural pronoun in 1 Corinthians 
doesn't mean the corporate entity of the of the local body of Christ. And it gets into some uh, interesting little grammar. So if we're going to translate this correctly, we would translate it, however, y'all are not in the flesh. And the are there in the English is the uh, present active indicative of the and the second person plural. Notice, a plural verb, y'all are. So you have a repetitive second person plural pronoun. It, it, you don't have to put the second person plural pronoun into the Greek grammar. It's embedded within the, the verb itself. But when you add the uh, uh, pronoun, you're just emphasizing it even more. So it's emphasizing the plural pronoun aspect. Y'all definitely are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. So both of these are plurals. But Paul is talking to a group, just as many times when I'm preaching to a group, speaking to a group, and I say, y'all need to read your Bibles. I'm not saying you need to read your Bibles as a group, and you understand that. When I say y'all need to read your Bibles, I mean y'all as a group of individuals, every individual within that group needs to read their Bible. But what's funny is people have come to this and they read the y'all as if it's talking about a corporate entity and the corporate entity is where the Spirit of God dwells, not in each individual. And I went back at one point and looked at every verb leading up to uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and I looked at all the all the uh, injunctions or commands that were there and it's obvious that Paul gives all these commands as plurals all through 1 Corinthians. He addresses the congregation as a through plural pronouns and plural verbs, but he's speaking about individual application. So he's, the plural indicates he's talking to a group of people, but a group of individuals, each of which has to fulfill the command. So when Paul says, uh, y'all are... Uh, the Spirit of God dwells in y'all. He's not talking about as a body when the church comes together, it becomes a temple of God. So that's that's very important to understand that. Now, another thing I want you to notice here, because this is one of those fun little things in grammar that I like to talk about every now and then and tweak a few people in the congregation, and that's always fun. We have some people here, get we love to get down and dirty on minor points of English grammar, and it's a lot of fun. However, y'all are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in y'all. But if anyone, wait a minute, what's that word? Anyone, we shifted our pronoun. We shifted our pronoun from a plural pronoun to a singular pronoun, because even in ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, as well as ancient English, going back to at least the 1300s, there are examples where plural pronouns are used to refer to individuals. And uh, every now and then people today get a little bit, um, you know, just get a little uptight over that. And uh, for years, because I have a tendency to do this, I just picked it up somewhere, I don't know what, where, but this is a classic problem of whether we refer to a uh, a singular, either a singular noun or a singular pronoun, is it proper to refer back to it 
with a plural pronoun, especially the third-person plural pronoun, they. So I want to read from a couple of acceptable sources here. First of all, this is from the um, uh, word, word usage uh, on Wikipedia in their dictionary and says, usage note, the use of the third-person plural pronoun they to refer to a singular noun or pronoun is attested as early as 1300 in English. It's all through Hebrew and Greek, by the way, in the New Testament. If it was good enough for the Holy Spirit, it better be good enough for you. Um, many admired writers have used they, them, themselves, and their to refer to singular nouns such as one or a person or an individual and each. Thackeray, for example, wrote in Vanity Fair in 1848, a person can't help their birth. Oh, that's just sacrilege for some people. And more recent writers, such as Jar George Bernard Shaw and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, have also used this construction in sentences such as, to do a person in means to kill them. So you have a person, singular noun, but them refers back to it as a it's really an indefinite plural. And another example, when you love someone, you do not love them all the time. Someone is a singular noun. Them is a third-person plural. So you ha this, is, this is not just part of English. It's part of every language, I think, in order to uh, avoid certain uh, difficult constructions. Uh, this writer says the practice is widespread and can be found in such mainstream publications as a Christian Science Monitor, Discover, and Washington Post. The usage is so common in speech that it generally passes unnoticed in speech. However, despite the convenience of third-person plural forms as substitutes for generic he and for structurally awkward coordinate forms like his or her, many people avoid using they to refer to a singular antecedent, that's the preceding pronoun, out of respect for the traditional grammatical rule concerning pronoun agreement. Most of the usage panelists reject the use of they with singular antecedents. 82% uh, find the sentence, the typical student in the program takes about six years to complete their coursework as unacceptable. However, that is constantly, that kind of phraseology is used in the Bible. According to Oxford Dictionaries and their guidance in this topic, says it's often important to use language which implicitly or explicitly includes both men and women, making no distinction between the genders. This can be tricky when it comes to pronouns. In English, a person's gender is explicit in the third-person singular pronoun, such as he, she, his, hers. There are no personal pronouns that can refer to someone as opposed to something without identifying whether that person is male or female. So what you should do in sentences such as these, uh, that's the question. If your child is thinking about a gap year, then blank, can get good advice from this website. So should that be if your child is thinking about a gap year, he or she or he, she can get good advice from this website. A researcher has to be completely objective in his findings, her findings, his, her findings. That's what we're going to with this silly, you know, gender-neutral language. Uh, this go, the Oxford Dictionary's guidance goes on to say, in the past, people tended to use the pronouns like he, his, him, or himself in situations like this. 
uh, if your child is thinking about a gap year, he can get good advice from his website. But see, now with gender neutrality, we have to put her in there too. And so they come down to saying, just skipping through a lot of this verbiage, to saying you can make the relevant noun plural, rewording the sentence is necessary. If your children are thinking about a gap year, they can get good advice from a, web, a website, or if your child is thinking about a gap year, they can get good advice. And they conclude by saying you can use the plural pronouns they, them, their, etc., despite the fact that technically they are referring back to a singular noun. So that is the conclusion of the Oxford Dictionary style sheet. I think that ends the discussion. Right? Yeah. But especially because this is common. We have the same kind of problem here. You have a discussion of y'all, plural pronoun, and then it's shifting to if anyone, a singular pronoun, does not have the spirit of Christ, he, another singular pronoun, does not belong to him. The you is plural. The he is instantiating that in terms of showing that it has individual application. And so this is important to see these kinds of distinctions because if you're not careful and you're splitting a grammatical hair too fine, you can end up in heresy by thinking that because it's plural, it's talking about a group that becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit as opposed to each individual within the group. So let's look at what the Bible teaches about the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. First of all, at the instant of salvation, every believer is both filled and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That happens. You don't feel it. I didn't feel it. We don't experience anything. Our blood pressure doesn't go up. Our heartbeat doesn't increase or decrease. We don't have uh, palpitations, flushing of the skin. We don't have a rush of joy. Uh, Some people might, but it's not normative. It's not something that everybody experiences. It would be related to other factors leading up to the point of conversion. But this is one of many, many things that happens at the point of salvation that are not not part of an experience, like our we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We don't feel anything. You don't suddenly feel as if your soul is seared with moral purity as you receive the righteousness of Christ. There's, there's no feeling there. It's just stated in Scripture. The only way we know about it is to study the Word of God, so we know about it. The reason a lot of people don't know about it is nobody wants to study the Bible anymore. They, they're, they're afraid to. And usually it's because the pastors are doing things that are not biblical, and so they don't want anybody reading the Bible. So at the instant of salvation, every believer is both filled and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. But these are not the same thing, but they are related. Second point, the indwelling is a permanent, non-experiential reality that establishes the foundation for absolute or positional sanctification. Now, that simply means that at the point of salvation, we are all set apart positionally. We're, we're given a new identity, a new position, a new legal standing in relation to God. That's positional, and sanctification has to do with being set apart to the service of God. As an unbeliever, we are in the kingdom of Satan. We have no, nothing ruling our nature except the sin nature, And so we're not usable by God at all. 
There has to be a righteous transformation that changes our identity and puts us in a new uh, a new place so that we can potentially serve God. That is called positional truth or positional sanctification. Now we see this embodied in this one. I'm just going to just put these two verses up here. First, First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty. Paul says, "Do you not know?" that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. See, it's possible for Christians to not know this. This is what he has already stated back in 1 Corinthians 3.16, as we'll see a little bit later on. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Now, one thing that's instructive is I went back and I did a search on the word soma, which is the Greek word for body. And if you look at the Greek word soma, as it is used by Paul in this first epistle to the Corinthians, it's never used of the collective body. That doesn't happen until a few chapters later when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then it talks about the body of Christ. It's already always defined in context. When it's talking about the body related to the individual, it always has this, this individual uh, nuance to it, unless it is clear from the context and the, the concept of the body of Christ or a corporate entity hasn't been introduced into, into the, this epistle yet. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So the Holy Spirit is in you, and that, this connects these two ideas. It's so important. The Holy Spirit is in you whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So see, this changes. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6 where he says that that we're, we, we shift from being a slave to sin to a slave to God. We're not our own. We never are. We're never uh, our own person. We're never just free of, of something to do our own thing. We're either doing Satan's thing or God's thing, but we're never doing our own thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For explanation, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. See, this isn't just an abstract doctrine. It has a significance that every day, because we're a new person, we have a new identity, a new positional reality, we are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, both physically and mentally. Uh, we are to glorify God in all of that, the body as well as the spirit, is God's. And one of the reasons he puts that in probably was because in Greek culture there had been this influence from Platonism for the last 400 years that the body was really insignificant and it was tied to the finite, tied to the earth. It was, it was just basically morally cor corrupt and could not be uh, of any value, that the real value was in the spir spiritual realm. But here Paul makes it very clear that Platonism is just a bunch of bunk because the body and the soul have been bought at a price, and so body and soul together can serve God. So this comes from this permanent, non-experiential indwelling. Third point about the indwelling and the filling of the Spirit is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit never before occurred in human history, and it's unique to the church age. You don't have it in the future in the tribulation. You'll have it in a different expanded uh, form, in a much more robust form in the 
kingdom, in the messianic kingdom, the millennial age following the second coming of Christ, when the new covenant goes into effect with, with Israel. But what we have now is similar to, but not the same as what will happen when the new covenant comes into effect with Israel and Judah. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit never occurred before in human history. If you think about the Old Testament and all of the people in the Old Testament, fewer than a hundred people had any kind of relationship with God the Holy Spirit. And this is just foundational. You had people like uh, Holyab and Bezalel, who were the craftsmen who were responsible for all of the metalwork, all of the woodwork, all of the des- furniture design and construction for the uh, for the tabernacle. Later, uh, those who were uh, doing all of that work for the temple. You have the prophets. You have some other, some of the kings. You have other leaders, but it's the, the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is primarily related to enhancing their leadership ability over the people of God. It is not related to their spiritual life at all, and you just got to get that notion completely out of your head. It had nothing to do with David's spiritual life. It had nothing to do with Solomon's spiritual life. It had nothing to do with Moses' spiritual life. It has to do with enhancing their leadership role within the theocracy of Israel, period. And it doesn't have anything to do with how spiritual or spiritually mature that Old Testament believer was. And so we're going to look at some of these examples uh, to understand this. I want you to look at some of these in context. Let's go back to Exodus. Look at Exodus 31. That's just... This is repeated later on when it comes into practice as there's a lot of uh, original sort of original instruction and then later or subsequent fulfillment in Exodus. So there's a lot of repetition. God tells them to go build something, and then later on it describes them building it, so you get it uh, twice. In Exodus chapter 31, this is a description related to um, the construction of the tabernacle and the artisans. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. The reason that genealogy bores you and shouldn't is because it locates this as a real person. That it's not just, if you read legendary mythological stuff, it doesn't lock down a person in terms of their genealogy as a real-time individual who lived at a specific place and time in history. So Bezalel is the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him. Notice God says, I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom. Now, when we look at that, at the way it's written in the Hebrew, it looks like he's got something similar to the filling of the Spirit that we have in the New Testament because of that word, the similarity of the word fill. But look at what we have. I have up on the screen an earlier verse in 28.3 where God directs Moses and says, so you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans. So they already have a natural talent. They already have skill to a certain degree in metallurgy, in uh, goldsmith, silversmith, carpentry. All who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Now here, the spirit is described in terms of what it produces, which is wisdom. This is the the, uh, a word we'll spend a lot of time on in our study in Proverbs. It's the uh, Hebrew word chokhmah, 
which has as its core meaning the idea of skill, producing something of value, producing something that's beautiful, producing something that's wondrous. In some contexts, when it's talking about wisdom in relation to life, it's living well, living in a way that brings glory to God and creates a beautiful, uh, magnificent life based on the grace of God and the wisdom of God and the revelation of God. Here, it's a spirit of skill at what they're producing. They, they are skillful as seamstresses. They're skilled as they're making the uh, furniture in their uh, metalwork and woodwork, all of that. So when you look at verse, 20, verse 3, it, he's giving them the spirit of wisdom. The Holy Spirit's behind it, but it's not a filling of the, by means of the spirit like you have in Ephesians uh, 5.18. But it is the giving of the Spirit who fills them with skill in their area of production. So uh, verse 3 should be understood, I filled him with the Spirit of God, that is, that is giving them wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all manner of workmanship. So it's not a spiritual thing, it is a, a uh, skill thing in terms of what they're going to produce in construction of, of the tabernacle. It's for the purpose, verse 4, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. I don't see anything like the filling of the Spirit there. I don't see character transformation there. It's not about spiritual growth there. It's about being able to produce in wood, silver, bronze, uh, something of beauty, something of glory. That was the role of the Holy Spirit there. It's not related to their spiritual life. Now, let's turn over to another example, a couple of books over in the Pentateuch, to Numbers, and go to Numbers chapter 11. Now, this is another one of those chapters and situations where we see a lot of rebelliousness on the part of the Exodus generation as they are complaining and griping and grumbling. Of course, none of us ever do that. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. Now, that's one of those commands that's repeated in the New Testament when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or murmuring in Ephesians chapter 5, just reminding all of us of that. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp, divine discipline, bringing death on more of the uh, Exodus generation. God said none of you are going to get into the land alive. So there were these various uh, um, uh, judgments that occurred that took uh, an additional level of life. The people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord. The fire was quenched. They call the place uh, Tabera because of the fire of the Lord. And so there's, there's this ongoing complaining there. And then as you go through the chapter, um, this is where there's a, uh, Moses begins to delegate authority to the 70 elders. And when you get down to verse 16, the Lord says to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, bring them to the tabernacle meeting, that they may stand there with you. So we're going to bring in this new leadership group that you're going to delegate responsibilities to. And then God says in verse 17, Then I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take of the Spirit that is upon you, which is the Holy Spirit. Notice, not in you. Upon you, it's the Hebrew preposition al, which always means upon. It's from an external point of view. 
not an internal. It's not the preposition but, which means inside of, but all, which is upon or above. I will come down, talk with you. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself. And so we have the story of when this occurs, then they prophesied. Now, people wonder, well, what exactly does that mean? Did they foretell the future? Did they preach a sermon? There's one passage in uh, in Chronicles, I think, that uses the term prophecy in relation to singing praise to God. I think that's probably what is meant here. Miriam prophesied before the Lord, and then she sang a hymn back in Exodus, I think it was 14. Uh, so I think that there is a meaning of prophecy that that is singing praise to God. And I think that's what happens here. So all of them that are there uh, praise God, but they didn't all come out of the of the camp. There are two that hadn't come out yet, and they're back in the camp, and they're known as Medad and Eldad. And in verse 25, we read, Then the Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, that's Moses, took of the spirit that was upon him, placed the same upon the seventy elders, and it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Another example of things that happen in the Scripture that are one-time events that are not to be seen as ongoing events. This is like the gift of uh, tongues and miracles and healing in the first century. They were just designated. They were just defined and, and, and set up to be temporary, uh, temporary gifts at the foundation of the church. So they uh, prophesied. But two men, verse 26, that had remained in the camp, and the name of one was Eldad and the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them, not in them, and they were among those listed but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. Because God is identifying who the leaders are by this this manifestation as a result of the Spirit coming upon them. Uh, then we have even Balaam. Balaam, who is doing everything he can to earn his uh, ill-gotten gains from uh, Balak, and he is uh, trying to, he's been hired to curse Israel, can't do it, but the Spirit of God comes upon him. So it's not related to his spiritual condition he's he's Balaam I believe was a, was a believer but he's disobedient the whole time so the spirit of god comes upon and uses even carnal pagan believers to accomplish his purposes and no book shows that better than in judges and we have this kind of thing happening again and again to the judges the spirit of the lord came upon Othniel uh in the fight against uh Cushan uh, Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. Uh, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon in 634. Judges 9.23, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Uh, that's, uh, that's slipped in there. That's, that doesn't relate to the other verses. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, 29. Uh, he's the one who made a, made a rash vow and ended up sacrificing his daughters a burnt offering to God. Uh, Judges 13.25 and 14.6 talk about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon uh, Samson. And Samson was a brutal, violent, womanizing uh, rebel against God 98% of the time in his life, and yet God still used him because that's how things functioned in the Old Testament economy. Uh, 
we see another example of this with Saul, 1 Samuel 10, 6 and 1 Samuel 10, 10, and the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, speaking of Saul, King Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. That indicates that he's regenerate. By the way, 1 Samuel 10, 10, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him. Notice it's always upon, 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 upon. It's not in. You didn't have indwelling like you do now. And then the Spirit of the Lord leads him. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. He comes under divine discipline. But the, the Spirit of the Lord left him. It was temporary. It was only for certain key leaders to enhance their leadership ability in relation to the theocratic kingdom, uh, the theocracy of Israel, and the Spirit. And it was a temporary bestowing uh, of the gift. This is why after David sinned with Bathsheba, he prays to God in his confession for God to cleanse him of his sin, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. See, he is not praying. Uh, this is not a prayer for us today. This is a prayer for that time. He doesn't want God to uh, turn his back on him like God did with Saul and give the blessing to another dynasty or another house and take the Holy Spirit away from David like he had taken the Holy Spirit away from Saul. And I'm amazed how many people decide that they want to teach something different on that uh, even today. So the Old Testament did not have a permanent giving or bestowal or gifting of the Holy Spirit. There's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit for, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these examples was not for their spiritual growth or spiritual life. Now, the, our Lord prophesied that there would be a unique coming of the Holy Spirit future to his ministry. In John fourteen sixteen, he said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit prophesied by the Lord. Uh, the fifth point, the indwelling is for the purpose of the making the, bottle, the body a temple, a naos, an inner sanctum for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament temple, the naos is constructed, and once it's constructed, then the presence of God takes up its abiding presence inside the naos. So this is the analogy. And uh, the believer, therefore, is set apart bodily in this life from unbelievers. Uh, there's no sacred buildings, only the human body. So in 1 Corinthians 6:19, all through that chapter, if you want to look there, let's just look at it briefly. 1 Corinthians 6:19, a little sword drill to turn there quickly. The, the whole section of this, and I think it's important to look at this because it identifies the terminology better, and then we go back to chapter 3. In 6:12. Paul's talking uh, about things that believers should participate in and not participate in. And in verse 15 he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members, uh, members of Christ? Now the term bodies used there, and that's talking about their individual bodies. Uh, members of Christ, he doesn't use the term body here to refer to the body of Christ. He says, Do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. So he's talking about individual bodies. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? There's body again. It's talking about the physical human 
body, not a not used metaphorically to refer to a corporate entity. Uh, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Again, it's the physical individual body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, the individual uh, physical body. Or do you not know that your body... See, you can't change the terminology here to suddenly jump from individual body to corporate body. Uh, but he who... Uh, let me see. Um, the te- your body is the temple, the nous of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God... And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So this is talking about the individual body. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 3.16. This comes immediately after uh, Paul's description of the judgment seat of Christ and the destruction of the wood, hay, and straw, rewarding rewards for the gold, silver, precious stones. He then says, do you not know? And he's talking to the whole group as a corporate entity. Do you all not know? that y'all are the temple of God. But see, he's not using that y'all as a corporate entity. We've already seen that. He's, he's talking to the whole group, so he uses a plural, but he's talking about ind- individual realities. Do y'all not know that y'all, that is each individual within the group, is a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, uh, which temple you are. So this indicates that the, this temple sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. So point number six, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent relationship not affected by carnality or spirituality. Whether you're obedient or disobedient, you're permanently set apart to God. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that is temporary. When we sin, it breaks that fellowship and that ongoing uh, harmony. The filling operation of the Holy Spirit is it stops. It just go, it, the pause button is hit, and it's recovered only when we confess our sin. The seventh point: indwelling is based on the grace provision of God. God, out of His character, has given this wonderful provision for us. It's not based on our volition, but the filling of the Spirit is. If we choose to sin, we break that filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we have to confess in order to recover it. Eighth point, indwelling is related to the body and the temple sanctifying aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's It's our entire person because the body is the dwelling place of our soul and spirit whereas the filling of the Holy Spirit is the role of the Holy Spirit in teaching and filling the believer's thinking and soul with the Word of God. Now, when we stop walking by the Spirit, that gets put on hold. Ninth point, filling is lost or put on hold when the believer sins, but the indwelling continues because it's a different purpose. It is related to our permanent position in Christ. And then what we're going to see, and I'm going to come back to next time, is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is different from the indwelling of Christ. We're all indwelt by Christ. And that, doc, we'll come back and talk about that next week, that is doubted. There, I can't believe how many so-called biblical scholars say that the term, uh, the indwelling of Christ, is just a, another way of talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when that's clearly not true in Scripture. So we'll have to tackle that next time because this is all part of our study to understand Romans 8. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that's a foundation for our spiritual life.
Anybody have any questions? Yes, you can. Diesel's got one back there. Oh, good. Well, uh, Wait, Diesel's got one. Your name's not Diesel, Mrs. Tappy. <laughs> Diesel had his hand up first. He was back there reaching for the clouds. Diesel. At the end of 1 Corinthians uh, three seventeen, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? Right, and that's an argument for um, you know, once saved, always saved. Right, right, but that has to do with temporal punishment, just as it does in the in the judgment seat of Christ earlier, and that's what it's got to be taken within that context. Well, see, the earlier talks about how at, at the judgment seat of Christ that you, you build your life with either gold, gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. And the person who enters into heaven with just wood, wood hay, and straw, everything else is burnt, all, everything gets burned up. But he enters into fire, into heaven, uh, yet it's through fire. And that's stated in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, and that's the destruction and the defiling of the temple of verse 17 in context. It's defiled because it was a wasted life and, and, and just produced wood, hay, and straw. So if anyone defiles the temple of God, how do you defile your temple of God? By uh, walking by the flesh and just producing wood, hay, and straw. And so God will destroy him, not a permanent destruction, but it's judgment and punishment at the judgment seat of Christ. Catherine. Right. So it, exactly. Yes. Yes, you can. Okay. But in the very first sentence, you said, <clears throat> when our souls are perfect, when God immediately uh, creates them and imputes them to us, it is our Holy Spirit that corrupts them. No, humans, it is our, our sin soul. nature that corrupts them. Oh, well, sin nature. What did I say? You said Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's created by God and, and, and imparted imparted to the body at, at that point, yes. But when it comes into the human body, it is corrupted by sin nature because it receives the imputation of Adam's original sin. Yes, that's correct. Another question over here. Anybody? Jeff? Later. <laughs> Chicken. Okay, all right. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be challenged by a uh, more complete, thorough understanding of the distinction between the filling of the uh, Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit, and understanding that the indwelling of the Spirit is a foundation related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which really sets us apart for the service to you and to serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. 
And Father, we pray that we might come to understand that we've just been given such a radical set of assets and skills to develop that um, that we dare not waste them, for therein lies a path of discipline. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.